Hello, and welcome to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. Today, we're going to be taking a closer look at a border. We might imagine the border between the U.S. and Canada or the U.S. and Mexico to be a line. But what if I told you that legally, the border is much bigger than that? So much bigger, in fact, that the border contains any American territory within 100 miles of the country's perimeter. What if I told you that this border zone is large enough that it's home to 200 million people, and that this border zone has been described by the ACLU as a constitution-free zone? For Elizabeth Shackman Heard, taking a look at our border is like holding up a magnifying glass to the American experience. It's a place where racialization and militarization is intense. It's a place where legal standards provide fewer protections against governmental abuse of power than anywhere else in the country. The institutional racism and militarization at the U.S. border are a way of understanding the racism and militarization everywhere else in the U.S. The militarization of American life and its entanglements with white supremacy come as no surprise to Americans who have been paying attention to the U.S. border, Elizabeth explains. U.S. border regimes are part of a network of enforcement regimes around the world. How do we demilitarize American society and prioritize anti-racism? How can we democratize the political and legal systems in America? To do so, Elizabeth suggests we zero in on the politics at the U.S. border. Because ultimately, the U.S. border isn't just a line. It isn't just anywhere 100 miles from the country's perimeter either. The border, it turns out, is everywhere. All this and more on today's episode of Interactions. I'm Janet Metzger, and this is Defund the Border Police, Racial Justice, and the American Border by Elizabeth Shackman Hurd. To study border governance is to hold up a magnifying glass to the American experience. The double convex lens focuses beams of light at a single point, and flammable objects can catch fire. The racialization and militarization of U.S. society and policing is intense at the border, and today, the border is almost literally everywhere. In legal terms, the border zone defines the edge of the United States and runs 100 air miles inside. In terms of population, this makes it home to nearly 200 million people. That's 65% of the U.S. population and 75% of the U.S. Hispanic population. Novelist and scholar Leila Leilami explains it this way. What formally counts as the border, according to the U.S. government, is not just the lines separating the U.S. from Canada and Mexico, 
but any American territory within 100 miles of the country's perimeter, whether along land borders, ocean coasts, or Great Lakes shores. That 100-mile strip of land encompasses almost entirely the states of Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, and Vermont, along with the most populated parts of many others, including California and Illinois. The ACLU describes the 100-mile area as a constitution-free zone, meaning that legal standards in this zone provide fewer protections against governmental abuse of power than almost anywhere else in the country. Agents are permitted to enter private property, to set up highway checkpoints, and enjoy wide discretion to stop, question, and detain any individuals they suspect of having committed immigration violations. In his book, The End of the Myth, A Historical Study of the American Frontier, Greg Grandin describes how agent power at the border is limited by no constitutional clause. There was no place patrollers couldn't search, he writes, no property belonging to migrants that they couldn't seize. The U.S. border stands as the exception to the rule of U.S. law. And its state of exception is exacerbated still further by the fact that the Department of Homeland Security is exempt from following the Fourth Amendment, the amendment that affirms the right of the American people, quote, to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation. It's specifically this requirement for a warrant or probable cause that the DHS is allowed to sidestep when it comes to the border. And the DHS isn't the only government agency allowed to sidestep the law. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection and the Department of Justice are both exempt from the restrictions on racial profiling that apply to other federal departments. We can't do our job without taking ethnicity into account, said one Department of Homeland Security official to the New York Times. We are very dependent on that. This statement by an official of the DHS reflects the long-standing institutionalization of white power and privilege in the U.S. Border Patrol ever since its founding in 1924 as part of the Immigration Act. In his book, Greg Grandin describes the Border Patrol in its early days as being dominated by white supremacists who turned it into a vanguard of race vigilantism. Since the beginning, Grandin writes, the Border Patrol has been a frontline instrument of white supremacist power. Minority populations in the border zone endure constant racialized surveillance and policing. There's a 2015 report by the humanitarian organization People Helping People in the Border Zone, 
that documents a noticeable pattern of the profiling of people of color at Border Patrol interior checkpoints. The report documents the Border Patrol's interactions with locals. The results of the study are staggering. They found that vehicles carrying Latinos were 26 times more likely to be asked for ID than cars carrying white motorists. What's more, they were 20 times more likely to be sent in for a secondary inspection. Statistics like these illustrate how crucial it is to have an understanding of border politics and border policy. It focuses our attention on the need for anti-racist reforms across American policing and security institutions as a whole. These reforms reveal themselves to be even more urgent when we think of them through the lens of militarization. The multitude of ways in which the permanently militarized and racialized post-9-11 U.S. foreign policy is coming home to roost is only beginning to be understood. Journalists like Ben Taub won a Pulitzer for writing on these connections for The New Yorker. In his article, Taub shows how difficult it is for former soldiers to escape the violent logic of foreign policy. When U.S. soldiers, formerly deployed in the Middle East, are hired to police American cities upon their return, it extends the logic of the global war on terror and its politics of race to the home front. The American government has had its knee on the neck of the people of the Middle East for decades. Homegrown police violence is no surprise to those who have experienced American foreign policy in this region. It's not only tactics and strategy that are being used at home against the American people, however. It's also surplus weapons. NPR reported that at least 10 police departments in the Minneapolis and St. Paul suburbs have obtained either all or nearly all of their Department of Defense military-grade equipment during the first three and a half years of the Trump administration. These weapons are being used to police American cities. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, Interactions listeners. This is Justin Laterell at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion. If you like this episode and want to learn more about the interactions of law and religion around the world, check out the link to our book brochure in the podcast description. There you'll find over 40 new titles like God and the Illegal Alien by Robert Heimberger and Michael Perry's new book on human rights, democracy, and constitutionalism. Each title includes a short description and a link to buy the book online. Thanks for listening to Interactions. Now, we'll return to Janet Metzger and Elizabeth Shackman Hurd's analysis of borders and policing in the United States. American policing and security are infused with the racial politics of the global war on terror. But racism has always been spoken through the languages of security, public order, and public health. 
Look no further than today's Countering Violent Extremism initiatives, which are counterterrorism strategies that recruit ordinary citizens to assist the government in identifying people who may be at risk of becoming violent extremists. These initiatives blend racism, ideas of religious and civilizational superiority, and the so-called science of counter-extremism, with the end result of criminalizing minority communities in the U.S. These racially damaging initiatives are now called Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention and Congress authorized $10 million to spend on these programs in 2021. While proponents defend countering violent extremism initiatives as some sort of kinder and gentler version of U.S. post-9-11 counterterrorism policy, they are actually an expression of a larger pattern of racialized governance and one that should be abolished. This idea that individual and societal problems can be resolved through violence or the threat of violence is insidious, and it's found a home not only in policing, but also among armed white militias in the U.S., for example, in the American Patriot Rally in Michigan in the spring of 2020 or in the militarized responses to the anti-racism demonstrations last summer after the murder of George Floyd. In May of 2020, armed white militiamen entered the Michigan State House in Lansing to call for freedom in protest of a stay-at-home order issued by Governor Gretchen Whitmer in response to the COVID-19 public health crisis. These protesters were heavily armed. They were waving signs that compared Governor Whitmer to Hitler. They were showing nooses and waving Confederate flags, signs reading, No work, no freedom, and Tyrants get the rope. Several of the armed demonstrators entered the Senate gallery and stood above lawmakers, at least one of whom put on a bulletproof vest. The organizer of the protest, Ryan Kelly, said he invited the Michigan Liberty Militia, which is listed as an anti-government group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, to serve as security for the event. What was the response to this violent display by white extremists? Donald Trump called the protesters very good people and urged Democratic Governor Whitmer to just make a deal. It was Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib who summed up the double standard this way. Black people get executed by police for just existing, she said, while white people dressed like militia members carrying assault weapons are allowed to threaten state legislators and staff. A mere few weeks later, George Floyd was murdered on May 25, 2020. Combined with the pent-up frustration resulting from centuries of institutionalized and state-sanctioned racism, his death sparked largely peaceful protests across the country. But these protests were met by local and federal officials with statements that described the protests as nothing other than terrorists, as extremists. Their statements even called for a military response. 
a White House call with governors in early June concerning the protests captured the Secretary of Defense Mark Esper using language inflected with military terminology. The sooner that you mass and dominate the battle space, Esper said, the quicker this dissipates and we can get back to the right normal. During the protests, President Trump threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807, which would allow him to order active-duty troops into cities across the United States. This would have effectively declared war on the American people. As the Times reported, during the unrest in early June, tens of thousands of rifle and pistol rounds were stored in the D.C. armory and partitioned in pallets labeled by their state of origin to be used on American citizens in case of emergency. There is a glaring discrepancy between official accounts of the anti-shelter-in-place protest and the anti-racism protests. The anti-shelter-in-place protests are described as protesters simply calling for freedom. The anti-racism protesters, however, are described as extremists, extremists which require the government to, quote, dominate the battle space. This discrepancy distorts the national conversation. It makes militarization seem normal, if not, frankly, inevitable. And it carries the double standard of racism. Governor Whitmer was asked on NPR whether she had perhaps taken the stay-at-home order too far with her COVID response. But meanwhile, the National Guard was occupying Washington, D.C. with the backing of the U.S. Army, facing down American citizens who were calling for racial justice. This is the United States that we live in, one where it's possible to go too far with safety precautions for public health, but where the military knows no bounds. The militarization of American life and its entanglements with white supremacy comes as no surprise to Americans who have been paying attention to the U.S. border. The numbers speak for themselves. Combining CPB and ICE, U.S. annual budgets for immigration and border enforcement have grown almost 80-fold since 1978, for a total of approximately $23 billion in 2018. As of 2016, according to Greg Grandin, the U.S. was spending more on border and immigration enforcement than on all other federal law enforcement agencies combined. Border enforcement is becoming increasingly globalized or externalized, meaning that U.S. border regimes are part of a network of enforcement regimes around the world. It was only a matter of time before this web of security regimes was brought to bear against American citizens at home. During some of the anti-racism protests in 2020, ICE and CBP were among the agencies quietly mobilized to patrol the streets of Washington, D.C. Some Americans, however, are fighting back. When Trump threatened to deploy the military to crush the protests against police brutality and structural racism, ACLU National Security Project Director Hina Shamsi fought back.
arguing that deploying more federal troops to suppress dissent would be irresponsible and dangerous. No level-headed governor is asking for an even more militarized response to civilian protests against police brutality and systemic racism for good reason. There are already many reports of civilian police and some state National Guard forces engaging in serious abuses, and the deployment of military personnel, who are generally not trained for civilian law enforcement, only escalates the risks. This president must not cause the country and its people even more harm. Racialized and militarized structures and habits of American governance are being challenged in the streets in the U.S. and overseas. To listen carefully to the protesters is to catch a promising glimpse of alternative visions of solidarity and community. That was Defund the Border Police, Racial Justice, and the American Border by Elizabeth Shackman Hurd. You can find the full article on Canopy Forum by following the link in the episode description. Canopy Forum and the Interactions podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and produced by Anna Knudsen. I am your narrator, Janet Metzger. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook, and you can subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.